It's great to be together again. I'm Steve Friesen, one of the retired pastors here, and uh, this is week two of three weeks of pinch hitting for our beloved pastors. And um, blessings on you as you go to FEC convention. I think it's in Denver, right? It is. Yeah. So um, the entire staff team is gone this week, I think, right? I mean, you're the pastoral staff. Yeah. So bless you as you go. It's a wonderful time. Um, it is hot. Yes. And I am so thankful for AC, aren't you? I mean, it's comfortable in here. Yeah, these are the days where being a freezing has no effect on anything. No effect on, yeah, I know. Um, how many of you, okay, be honest, remember a time when there, weren't, there wasn't AC in a car that you drove? Look at this. Yeah, so <laughs> that's enough. We could go a long ways in that direction. But uh, we know what hot is. We know what hot is, and it is warm. But I'm thankful that we're here. And uh, today, the master at work, Jesus quenches a thirsty heart. And uh, in the heat of summer, it's very appropriate. Don't you love to see people who are really good at what they do, doing what they do best, whether that's a a talented athlete or a skilled musician, a craftsman, a creative chef. Um, it's awesome to watch people who are good at what they do. And we love watching a master at work. A number of years ago, Bobby and I were in Japan. We were planting a small church in Komaki, Japan. And um, one day in our small service, an elderly couple came. And as we got to know them, eventually we discovered that the gentleman in his 80s was a master potter, and he was quite well-known all over the country. And uh, one day he and his wife invited Bobby and me and our sons over to his home where he demonstrated his craft for us on, on the potter's wheel. It was so amazing to watch him form a vessel in front of our eyes. And then he took us out back and showed us his handmade earthen kiln in the backyard. He'd made it all himself. And where he fired up his creations with only red pine, he said, that's all I use. And where those creations get fired up and receive their life, their texture, and their color. It was, it was amazing to see. And then, afterwards, we uh, had tea in their living room, and we got to see a number of his prized possessions. He pulled out these boxes and opened them up and told the story of how he had made this and, and that. Uh, beautiful vases and bowls. It was a wonderful, unforgettable experience. I like to think of God as the master craftsman. I mean, the universe is his handiwork. We know that. But even though the universe reflects his talents, his greatest creation is you and me. We, humans, were made in his image. We are designed to receive his life and reflect his glory. We're designed to enjoy his fellowship and his love and to rest securely in his delight and to find our identity and our purpose in that joyful connection that he offers us with himself. Well, last week I started a three-part sermon series called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and we had a little fun with that, based on an old Clint Eastwood movie that I have never seen. Full disclosure. <laughs> So why are you using a movie you've never seen? Well, because just the words seem to fit. 
Good, Bad, and Ugly. I borrowed that title because Jesus is dealing with three individuals in the Gospel of John that seem to fit in those categories, though they really don't, but they do in a way. And so last Sunday, we looked at the good man, Nicodemus, from John chapter 3, respectable, religious. But when he called on Jesus, Nicodemus, Nicodemus was shocked to be told, the good man needs a new birth. What? Yes, you do. And as we observed last week, it's, it's tricky labeling people good people, like we think we're good, but we're all actually spiritually dead and broken pretty badly, right? At least I am. And thankfully, Jesus has given us new life. But we were bad. We were dead in our sins. Sometimes our brokenness reveals itself in uh, the unwise and ungodly lifestyle choices that we make. We've been hurt so, so much that, you know, we don't mind hurting other people. And we get this label, bad, stuck on us. And many of us have been there. But the good news is, even if you're a bad person, God doesn't look at you that way. He looks at you as someone, as, uh, at us as someone forgivable, someone precious to him, someone for whom his son died and paid the ultimate price on the cross, who covered our sins. God is offering bad people, a joyful, life-filled connection with God. If you have a thirsty heart and a checkered past, Jesus says, come on, here, welcome. So today, I want to look with you at Jesus' significant life-transforming encounter with a woman from Samaria. John 4 tells us the story. She is such a contrast from the man of, the good man of last week. We know his name, Nicodemus. We don't know this woman's name. Nicodemus was a Jew. This woman is a Samaritan. Nicodemus was wealthy. She's a common woman whose daily chores include carrying water from a distant well to her home. And the story of how Jesus connects with her, honors her with his time and his tender instruction, how he quenches her spiritual thirst, and then uses her to transform an entire community? This is a, an amazing portrayal of the master savior at work. Yeah. Amen. This morning, I want to watch Jesus and see what we can learn from him as he connects and shares life and totally changes this woman. So the first thing we notice about this encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman is that he enters her world, John 4, 1-6. He enters her world. There's no impact without contact. You can't influence someone from a distance. This one-on-one -on -one is so critical in Jesus' ministry. And John tells us that Jesus decides to head north from Jerusalem, from Judea to Galilee up in the north, and that he had to pass through Samaria, verse 4. It's a very interesting statement. The most direct route, of course, from Jerusalem to Galilee is straight through Samaria, which is in between those two areas. But most Jews, the purest of Jews, would take a long detour. They would go, I'm not going through Samaria. We're going to go across the Jordan to the east. We're going to go through Perea. Then we're going to head back north after we pass Samaria, back into Galilee. That's what they would do. Extra miles, they didn't care, as long as they just didn't come into contact with Samaritans. And I'm going, wait a minute, is there anybody in my world, is there anyone in your world that you avoid? 
Like, the, if you see them, you don't go to them. You walk around the other way, or you just don't like being in that neighborhood, or, you know, this is human nature. It's no secret that there's bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. And, even, and this has been going on for centuries. Let me give you a, just a small his, uh, history lesson here. Many of us probably know this information, but 900 years before this, 900 years before this, there was a famous King David. His son was Solomon, and Solomon was wealthy and powerful, and he accumulated against God's heart many, many wives, hundreds of wives. And some of those wives did not believe in the true God of Israel. And they had an effect on Solomon's heart. His heart, his heart ruptured in his loyalty between God and them. And because of Solomon's personal division inside his soul, in the generation of his son Rehoboam, who became king after him, there was a visible rupture in the country. It started in the heart of Solomon. And so 10 tribes seceded from the kingdom, the northern tribes. And they said, we're forming a new nation. We don't want anything to do with the house of David. So they became the northern kingdom. They called Israel. And then the remaining two tribes of Judah, David's line, and Benjamin, ruled by Davidic kings, formed the southern kingdom called Judah then. So how long did the northern kingdom of Israel last? Well, it lasted a little over 200 years. And only 200 years because all 19 of those kings of the northern kingdom were godless kings. There wasn't a one that pleased God. And they all worshipped their pagan idols. So in 722 BC, the Lord sent the Assyrians to destroy Samaria, Israel's capital, and carry away captives to Nineveh. And then the Assyrians transplanted non-Israelite peoples with their pagan worship and brought them into the northern kingdom area of Israel. So you have an already compromised worship scene, but then you have all these pagan people being brought in by the Assyrians. Those people and their descendants are known as Samaritans. They are racially and religiously mixed. And if you want to know the details of how this happened, Read 2 Kings chapter 17. Well, then the southern king of, of Judah lasted 140 years after the northern kingdom fell. Why did it last so long? Well, because of the 19 kings in the southern, eight of them were godly kings, and they lasted 140 more years. But even then they forsook God, and God brought the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem and the temple there, and Israel went in to a 70-year exile in Babylon. But he raised up Cyrus, the, the Persian king, who gave them permission to go back to Judea and rebuild their temple. So when they came back and rebuilt their temple, the Samaritans said, let us help you build. And the Jews that were restored from Babylon, they said, no, thank you. You don't belong to us. You are not our friends. And so this rejection fostered an enmity which continued for 500 years until the time of Jesus. So because they were denied involvement in the rebuilding of the Jewish temple, what did the Samaritans do? They went and built their own, 30 miles north of Jerusalem on a mountain called Gerasim. There was the Samaritan temple. 
it didn't help anything that about 100 years before Christ, the Jews went and destroyed the Samaritan temple. That did not make things sweet between those two groups. So, there was no greater way for a Jew to slander someone than to call him uh, or her a Samaritan. And in John 8, 48, Jesus gets it. He upsets the Jews for rightly calling them out, and then they angrily say, do we not rightly say that you, speaking of Jesus, are a Samaritan and have a demon? It's like, those are the two nastiest things you could say to somebody. So back to our story, John 4, 4. So we're told that Jesus intentionally chose the path that would take him into Samaritan territory. And I, it's not recorded in Scripture, but I'm just imagining the disciples are not like, oh, yay, we get to go through Samaria. They're like, why are we going through Samaria? They don't like us. We don't like them. They're not our kind. Yeah, can't we take the long way around today? But Jesus entered Samaria intentionally because he wanted to show that God's heart has love and compassion for them. And there's a particular woman who needs the life that he came to offer. So he entered her world because he and the Father loved her. So I'm just wondering how sensitive to the Father's heart you and I are. Would, would you be willing to go across, and I know many of us are, to cross cultural and religious boundaries for the sake of those that God loves? Yeah. It's so easy to stay with our own kind or to hang out with those who go to the same school or who attend this church or prefer the same political party or have the same income level. We just, it's so easy, I, I know, in my own soul too, to get locked into my own world of comfort. You know, it's hot as we observed, but believe it or not, fall will be here. Just think of it. Think of your coats in the closet that are anxious to be put on. Okay. Uh, or don't. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but one of my favorite fall things, this is what I like, flocks of hundreds and thousands of European starlings, they're birds. And no, you know how they fly together over milo fields and then they land, they all eat, and then they fly around again, they cross the freeway, and then they land on in power line in this huge congregation. They're all the same birds. They're all European starlings. And they just love to flock together. And somehow they love their own kind. And when I look at starlings, I, I am reminded that's not how I am supposed to be. That's not how Christians are supposed to act. Only our own kind. Flying together, doing everything. Jesus sent us not, he said, you're not of the world, but I'm sending you into the world into the world, and we're sent to all peoples, and we're sent to all nations, and so God loves it when his children intentionally cross, express his heart and cross boundaries and get out of comfort zones to reach someone of a different background, a race, or culture, and this is what Jesus is modeling here. We support, as a church, a missionary, many missionaries, one of, the, one of whom is Christy Willis. I didn't tell her I was going to talk about her, but Christy serves in Wichita with International Students Incorporated. And she invests and hosts and befriends international students for Jesus' sake. A beautiful ministry. And a number of us in our church family have gotten involved with Christy. And some of you, I know, have hosted international students in your own homes. And that's awesome. And many of us have taken our kids or grandkids with us on the Amigo Mexico trips, mission trips to Mexico, Reynosa, Children's Haven. Those are all great things. 
And I think it's great to be a foreigner because it's so stretching. Be in someone else's home territory. But here, we're not just talking about traveling. If we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, we can enter someone else's world at Walmart. Or, you know, you could cross the alley instead of the ocean to, to find someone of a different persuasion. So John tells us that Jesus is entering Samaritan territory and he's resting at a well near a town called Sychar. And the scripture notes that he is tired and he's hungry. Thirsty. Thirsty. He sent his disciples into town to buy Samaritan Big Macs. Yes, Peter, we eat their food. Yes, we do. So John tells us in verse 6 that it's the sixth hour. That's not entirely clear. If it's Roman time, it's 6 p.m. If it's Jewish time, that means it's noon. I'm thinking it's noon, it's blistering hot. And for Jesus, entering our world means, as the creator of all, that he's taking on our true humanity so that he could feel the heat of what it means to be hot and tired and sweaty and dirty. He knows what life is like for you and me. He's been there. And he's resting. He needs a break. And so here at the well where he's resting comes his appointment. A Samaritan woman from a nearby town, water jar on her head, maybe a bucket and rope around her shoulder. And now we get to see Jesus at work. Not just entering her world, but secondly, engaging her in conversation. Engaging her in conversation. Now, a normal Jewish man would have sat there without saying a single word, silent, as she went about her chore. But this is not our Savior. Shattering custom and shattering years of rejection. Jesus acknowledges her and he gives her his attention and he speaks to her. He didn't start with a sermon. He didn't offer a suggestion or he didn't uh, launch an inquiry. He didn't hand her a business card. He didn't give her a tract. He just simply looked at her and asked a favor. Will you give me a drink? Verse 7, a cup of cold water would taste so good right about now. Wait a minute, Lord. A Samaritan cup raised to Jewish lips? You're going to drink that? Yes. Sometimes we don't even like to make eye contact with people, much less open our mouths around people we don't know. Jim Gehring, who went to be with Jesus, one of our own, uh, earlier this year, he, he showed the way. He said, Steve, I practice what I call walking across the room. So we're, we're on Amigo trip. Wherever I see Jim, he's talking to somebody he doesn't know. He walks across the room to the other side. He doesn't sit with his own people. He always walks across the room. I'm Jim Gehring. <laughs> and then, you know, he makes friends. I learned a lot from Jim. But Jesus is like on the elevator where everybody else is quiet and nobody's looking at each other, he's going, hello. <laughs> and uh, he, anyway, he speaks to the woman. He's gracious and humble, and he connects with people. He doesn't avoid them. He doesn't overpower them. He doesn't try to impress them. Think of it. He's the creator of the universe, holding everything in his hands, as we sang. But he puts himself in a position of need. May I have a drink from you, please? Wow, he asked for a favor. Reality is that his initiating a conversation with this woman is him doing her a favor, 
But at this point, he's just building a bridge, and we need to build bridges. So she had the equipment for drawing water. He doesn't, so he asked. He initiated, and I like that. Not only does he engage this woman in conversation, third, he aroused her curiosity. He aroused her curiosity. She asks in verses 9 to 12, why are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan? She is shocked. She's utterly like, she doesn't know what to think. And so ignoring this, why are you a Jew asking me, a Samaritan, bringing that identity issue, just, Jesus says something very unusual. He said, if you really knew who was talking to you and what God wants to give you, you would have asked me for a drink and I would have given you living water. Amen. Amen. And if you found yourself, like, let's say you found yourself in the presence of a billionaire who loves to give money away, okay? He's a philanthropist. And what would you do? And you're visiting with him and you're, you probably are going to say, you know, I'm driving an old car and, and um, I'm behind on rent. The roof needs replacing. And um, I've got credit card debt up to my ears. Furniture's wearing out. My family hadn't been on vacation in a long time. Uh, could you? God is waiting. He's a generous God. Jesus mentions a gift. He mentions living water. He doesn't explain what that is. But the woman is curious, maybe a little bit skeptical, like living water? What is that? This well? From this well? It's really deep. you got nothing to draw with? Are you serious? Living water? A gift from me? Where do you get that from? You're not greater than our ancestor Jacob who dug this well, gave it to us. Are you? When a lot of people think of God, they think of holy demands, high requirements, unattainable standards of righteousness. They think of Someone like an executive sitting at his desk up in the control center of the universe, commanding us to love him because he's the boss. But that's really not an accurate picture of God from the Bible. Yeah, he's worthy of our worship and our loyalty and our faith and trust, but the true God of the Bible always gives first. Always gives first. He gives generously. And our God has come close at great personal expense to his own reputation. He has sacrificed to satisfy our deepest hunger and our deepest thirst. And he doesn't expect dedication from somebody who's never tasted what he has to give. He's offering us that gift. Number four, which is what it is. Now that he's aroused the Samaritan woman's curiosity, he talks to her about the gift. He's offering her a gift, something priceless. And he says to her, everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Verses 13 and 14. Wow, that's an offer. And some people go, well, what's the big deal about living water? I mean, I have my doctor Die, Dr. Pepper every morning and I'm good to go. What do I need living water for? We're so calloused to offers, aren't we? We just like, oh, free, rebate, discount, buy one, get one. It just feels like everybody's desperate for our money. And, and a lot of offers are too good to be true. Just some are hooks to get you in the door and then have you spend money. Bobby and I were, many years ago, wooed when we were in Hawaii for a few days, buy a free lunch offer. Ooh, free lunch, let's go, honey, let's go. 
And we found ourselves, after eating lunch, squirming under the pressure to buy a condo from a salesperson who sauntered up to the table just as we were about ready to leave. Man, well, we rejected the condo. But it took pure grit not to buy the macadamia nuts and the chocolates that were pushed on us. Free. Jesus' offer was not a come on. You know, he knows physical water cannot ultimately satisfy. We get thirsty, we drink, we get thirsty again. It's like that with life. We try to fill our lives with, right, possessions, pleasures, relationships, activities, achievements. We all know that at the end of the day, nothing touches that deep spiritual ache and thirst in our souls. God's put that soul, that thirst there. Biblical commentator Arthur Pink put it this way, Earth's deepest well may be fathomed and drained, and the needy soul remain thirsty after all. Like in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon's reflecting on his search for pleasure and meaning, he's tried everything, he concludes it's all vanity, it's empty. I've tried it all, nothing satisfied. Many years ago when we were in Japan, in Yokohama this time, I met a 27-year-old young lady who, named Midori who came to talk about her emptiness. She told me she was an only child in an unhappy family. My dad was a hardworking man, started his own business, but he wasn't faithful to my mom. My parents constantly fought over the other woman, and so my mom became bossy and clingy, and my dad withdrew. Not once did he ever tell me I love you, or give me any kind of affection that I craved. And because Midori liked English conversation, she decided to attend an English evening school to learn how to speak English. And her teacher was a native English-speaking person, a young man, attractive Westerner. And she fell head over heels for him. Well, a romance blossomed. Wow. And all her dreams about finding a guy like she'd seen in the movies... They all seemed to be coming true. He pushed her for intimate sex. She gave herself. And as soon as she did, he pulled away and he said, you're probably thinking marriage, but I'm actually already married. Oh, that was the end of that. Her heart is broken. She went into an emotional tailspin for months. The next summer at her job, she got involved in another sexual relationship with her Japanese married boss at work. And then he dumped her when she started hanging around other guys. And she had to quit that job. You know, she said to me, I used to be a pretty honest person who believed in and trusted people. But since being deceived and thrown away, I see myself becoming hard and a cold person and I'm kind of scared by that. And I asked me, Dodie, what are you really looking for? She said, love. But I can't find it. And nothing is going right for me. Like my ideals are shot and I, now I don't care. And I'm scared that I'm not the person I used to be. She told me that she'd been going to fortune tellers to find out why her life wasn't going well. And all they told her was what they tell everyone else. You're not worshiping your ancestors enough. 
What am I supposed to do? She looked at me. I've had horrible nightmares. I've had visions. Sometimes it feels like an invisible evil power is trying to choke me. And I said, Midori, nothing that this world will offer you can totally and completely satisfy your longing to be known and loved. And there is someone who knows and loves you who can protect you. I said, Jesus offers dry and thirsty souls living water and a relationship with God who created you and loves you and gave his son Jesus. Midori had never heard of Jesus Christ until that moment in her life. But she was interested. And so was this Samaritan woman. She said to Jesus, looking at him, Sir, I would like, I would like some of that living water. So I don't have to come here and keep drawing water over and over from this well. Okay, we kind of smile. Her heart is beginning to open, but she's still unaware of something. She's unaware of her spiritual need. There is an issue that Jesus needs to raise with her. But see how he does it. Number five, Jesus stirred her conscience with an interesting assignment. He stirred her conscience. So rarely, if you're witnessing to somebody sharing the gospel with them, would you send them away and give them an assignment? Say, go, do this, and then come back. But Jesus said, go, leave. Call your husband and come back here. Your husband. Like a gentle doctor probing for sensitivity, Jesus is putting his finger on the one area of her life where she feels the greatest pain, where she suffered the deepest failures, and she's made the most wrong choices. This gift of eternal life won't be welcomed until she understands her spiritual need and her out of sync with God heart. So Jesus exposes her need. But she gets defensive. She's feeling some shame welling up. And what does he know about me? The woman is not about to come clean about her heart issues in the presence of this stranger, nice as he may be. So she says to Jesus in verse 17, I don't have a husband. Now, I love what Jesus does. He knows her story, but he's not out to blast her even if he wanted to. I mean, he could. This would be the perfect, perfect opportunity to unload on her, expose her defensiveness. He could say, I know, you are so lost. You're having trouble keeping a man, aren't you? You're trying to find someone who loves and protects and will provide for you, accept you, but you're just getting burned over and over. You have no discernment with guys, do you? I mean, your record of marriage is a dismal failure. Do you think just living together with the guy you have now is a better deal? Come on. He doesn't say any of that, although we might. He doesn't go there. He's not about to assault her with the truth of her failures. By the way, that is really good news. Based on, instead in verses 17 and 18, Jesus compliments her for her honesty. He said, you're absolutely right. You don't have a husband. You've been actually married five different times. And the man you're with now, well, he's not really married to you, is he? Thank you for being honest. Appreciate that. Whoa. Even though Jesus is exposing her deep near spiritual need, her sinful choice, he's also communicating something really important. It's that there's somebody who really loves you. 
I have deep compassion and understanding. Ma'am, I know your story. I know where you're hurting. I know why you're running empty, scared, without hope. I know what you've done to self-medicate. I know your heart. The truth is, there is no man, no relationship, who can provide you with the love you're looking for. You're made for more. You were made to live on living water and on eternal life that I myself can give you. Well, that's a beautiful offer, but exposure is painful, and the Samaritan woman retreats into a defensive position. And she throws out a controversy to take the gentle heat of Jesus' probing off of her. And so she raises an old Jew-Samaritan flashpoint controversy issue regarding where the true place of worship is. Verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. What do you think about Roe versus Wade, Jesus? Just throw out something, you know, controversy. Polarize. Get the attention off you. You worship here. We worship here. You worship there. We like contemporary. You like it quiet. You like it classic. We like it loud. We like it informal. You like it formal, and on and on it goes. But watch how Jesus deals with the issue. Six, Jesus patiently answered her questions. Verses 20 and 24 to 24. He said, true worship, ma'am, is not about a style or a location. It's about a heart attitude to the Father. It's not about externals. It's about internal humility and openness to God. And it's not about preferences. It's about truth. It's about a living connection with the true God who wants an engaged heart. And by the way, he says in verse 22, you're worshiping in ignorance, actually. Jews aren't perfect, but the Father's chosen to reveal himself and his salvation through them. Understand that, please. You know, there's something in the way that Jesus spoke to her that jogged a deep longing in her. And she raised a dream that I doubt she had never ever verbalized. It had been buried for long years in her soul. And she said to him in verse 25, I know that when Messiah comes, he'll set it all straight. That was the introduction that Jesus was waiting for. Verse 26 he revealed to her his true identity, seventhly. He said something like, I'm so glad you're looking for Messiah because he's sitting right in front of you. I am the Messiah. You're actually looking for me. Wow. Her jaw drops. Her heart opens. Saving faith blossoms. She welcomes the well visitor as God and Messiah into her life in that moment. She embraces Jesus by faith. And she knows something wonderful has happened to her soul. God does a work in that moment. She received a gift that transformed her heart. She knew something was different. It quenched her thirst, the thirst of her soul like nothing she's ever experienced before. And that's what Jesus loves to do for people like you and me as well. So she left her water jar at the well and she sped off in an instant to share her new life with the people of her own town. I'm imagining this. You guys will never believe who I met at Jacob's well today. Let me guess. One of your long-lost cousins? No. 
Uh, someone who told me everything I've ever done. Oh, one of your exes. No, someone wonderful. Oh, you found another guy. No, I've met the Messiah, the promised Savior. He's Jesus of Nazareth, and he's at the well if you want to meet him. The woman's testimony started this movement of Samaritans toward Jesus. The whole town pressed him to stay two days with us. And many believed and gave testimony that he, Jesus, is the Savior of the world. A community is transformed because of the impact of one woman's life change. Amen. So here's the question for us. This morning, have you found living water? The God who calls himself the fountain of living water, Jeremiah 2.13? Oh, he offers so much. He said, stop digging your own cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water, and start drinking from the fountain of living water, which is me. The Bible's full of invitations to come and drink from the true spring of the water of life. John 7, 37, Jesus cries out in the temple one day, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He believes in me. As the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So when we place our faith in him, he gives us his spirit, he comes into our life, the Holy Spirit does to provide the joy, the life, the connection, the acceptance, the forgiveness, the love, that we were created to experience. So have you experienced that? And then let me just say, bring your thirst to Jesus, because we still get thirsty. Drink deeply from him. Revelation 21.6, as I close, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. So if Jesus is our source, we have all that we need for life. So let's drink up and then pass the cup. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you're glorious and generous and good. And we thank you for your son expressing your love and your heart for lost humanity. That's us. For sending him into the world to seek and to save the lost. And then to offer living water to anyone who is thirsty who will come and acknowledge their need, their sin, and recognize that Jesus paid it all and offers us that connection with the eternal source of life and joy that nothing in this world can touch. Thank you so much for that promise of living water. May we share that cup with someone else. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Steve. What a good reminder that we can't satisfy ourselves and nothing can satisfy us, but Jesus has everything. I feel like all the way from worship, all the way through the message, that was what we got, that Jesus has everything we need. He can satisfy us. He's enough. So let's take that message with us as we go out in our own hearts, and by God's grace, let's find a way to share that living water with someone else. Grace, we are the church. Now let's go be the church. We are sent.